This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Welcome back to Finnegan and Friends the show about language turning into music. The last line of Finnegan's Wake from the river figure of Anna Livia Pluravel carries you off without a conclusion, without a period. Here's Catherine O'Callaghan reading it. There's where, first, we pass through grass behush the bush to, wish, a gull, gulls, far calls, coming far, End here, us them, Finnegan, take, but softly, memember me, till thousands thee, lips, the keys to, given, away, alone, alast, aloft, along the. When the actor and director Alwyn Fuere first read The Wake, those lines especially spoke to her, or took over. I chose to read the last page basically and as I was reading it it was one of those epic moments of inspiration inspiration often doesn't happen like that but in this case it did it was like a tongue of fire descending and the hairs on the back of my neck went up and as I finished it with the away alone alas I loved along the there was such an atmosphere in the room and kind of a transformation that occurred I think I just said out loud to somebody That's my next piece, The Voice of the River from Finnegan's Wake. Here's the novelist Joshua Cohen. This is, it's obviously a book written by somebody who likes singing and likes song. And, you know, Joyce famously did. It was almost a moral stand to kind of write by the ear at a time when really the eye had become dominant. You know, the, the oral tradition of the storyteller, the singer, poet, inspired by the muse, right? Is this, you know, obviously is from classical antiquity and and even before. Here we have Joyce writing after the twilight or after the the, the triumph, sorry, of the Victorian printing press and the linotype machine in the era of two editions of a newspaper per day and just type, 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 type. So much of these kind of novels, you know, multi-volume novels, these novels by the pound that he grew up on you know, they were written to feed the insatiable demands of the press, to say, I'm going to write for the ear and the mouth, as opposed to the eye and the hand. It's not even conservative. It's beyond that. It's almost like a paleotechnic, desperate, insane gesture to make. But I think that that's really why this book has lasted. It's because it's a reminder that everything that we really appreciate in terms of story is heard and spoken, and that the eye and the hand are sort of these antisocial compromises 
when we don't have other people around. It, wait, explain that. How is how is the eye antisocial? How how is the eye a compromise? Well, if you you know with the eye in the hand, you're you're alone reading a book. You're reading it to yourself. It's a more isolate and cold activity. It's not a community activity. It's not a family or clan activity, right? It's the sort of atomized, estranged individual living in the city, you know, in their small room reading. Joyce instead found a language both intimate and shared. One thing that that does resound with me is this Wittgensteinian idea of, of private language. You know, you would think that a language gets richer the more people speak it. And, and in a way, that's very true, right? I mean, you just have to look at English to see, you know, all the different people kind of speak English, and then you bring those words into English. And yet, we also have like global business English, which is a very flattened, totally simplistic and reduced English that makes me hate the language. But the private language idea is saying that, well, there's also a way in which expression is richer, the fewer people speak a language. And that is essentially, you know, how you can communicate with your wife, your husband, your sibling, with just a look, with just a word, because there's so much shared experience that you can rely on abbreviation on, on shorthand to make yourself understood. That tension between the richness that comes from letting in the quote unquote foreign or strange from an expansion of the number of speakers of a language and the richness that comes from contracting it down to a family level, the language that's you know spoken by people who are around each other all day and have a mutual history, you know, have this shared past. This richness that lies at the extremes is something that's very, very important to Joyce and important to the wake. Yeah. This is different from what we usually read in novels. It allows itself to go in the direction that the sound tugs in. Some paragraphs move incredibly quickly and some move incredibly slowly. And usually the sections that I read quickly are the sections that the novelist probably should have cut out, but they felt should be there. Exposition where a character explains to another character what the reader already knows, or honestly, long nature descriptions, which sometimes I can't put up with. But I read faster when I find something is boring to me. And then you read fast, fast until you trip over yourself and then you end up skipping. With this, you can't say this thing is boring to me and that next thing is boring, is, is less boring to me because there isn't that, uh, it's not that kind of experience. You know, I don't think there's one character that holds my attention or one sub theme that holds my attention more than something else does. For me, the speed of reading changes based on the velocity of the text, meaning it's, it's assonance, it's alliteration, it's punctuation, the length of its sentences, the degree to which the sentences are self-contained entities versus how much the sentences really respond to the previous sentence in the next sentence. And so that for me really becomes as close to a purely aesthetic experience of prose as I could come to. And so in a way, reading Finnegan's Wake is like it teaches me actually the tempo of prose as divorced from its duties in the story. There is a natural musicality that most writers view as the enemy. I think that's because there's certain expectations of prose that are culturally determined or market determined, both whatever. Prose is the bearer of information, right? And poetry is, I don't know, something to say at funerals. But I think that if we can rid ourselves of the expectation of prose to be the bearer of information, 
and allow it to be the bearer of sound. That's sort of the, the first step toward being in the book in a way that feels um, where, where a reader can feel confident. I had this question for Joseph Nugent. How does that sound party, that sound adventure, that music relate to this data adventure? By, by the end of his life, Joyce had come to believe or purported to believe that language itself could be valued independent of its actual connection to reality. Particular words strung in a particular sequence had the ability to affect the emotions, totally irrespective of what their signified was. And he believed that there was music, that there was natural music within words, if they were strung together in a proper way, that we could not just get pleasure of, but we could feel the emotions that were being expressed. Well, we kind of know that ourselves when we think about the well-known image of onomatopoeia. And if we think about sound symbolism as being another way in which it does seem that sounds actually can affect us, as I say, irrespective of the meaning that's within them. I think Joyce absolutely believed that, and I think there's a certain truth in it. I had a professor some years ago who explained to us in his belief that where we offered the choice between a nice fine slice of pie and a big fat slab of cake, even did we not have any mental image of what those things were, what that choice meant in terms of bakery and cooking, that somehow or other the very sounds of them would give us the notion of thinness and niceness and tightness on one and bigness and lusciousness and whatever on the other. I think Joyce would have believed that and I think he was perhaps true and I think that that informs a lot of the way that he was working with the sounds. After all this study of the wake, I have to accept that reading it is to some extent only a personal adventure into mystery. Here's Joseph Nugent talking about his Finnegan's Wake reading group. We begin our typical meetings and in, in which we would, we would read probably no more than 20, at most 30 or 40 lines per week. We begin with the reading of the likely text, of the lines we expect to cover. We spend an hour and a half trying to explicate them, and at the end of those, then, I would typically read that thing back again to see how much wiser we have become if not wiser, at least better informed. And indeed, we invariably find that we know an awful lot, an awful lot more, that we have penetrated the sometimes ink-like darkness that emerges from one's first reading of the text. What I do find is the number of different intonations that I have to master in simply reading 20 lines. So he moves from one register to another, from comedy to tragedy to, to, to of course, a different language, to a different discourse repeatedly. It's hugely confusing, but hugely exciting. I remember uh, one particular meeting that we had quite some years ago, and I'd been reading the book with this group, which was called Raiden the Wake, as in to read in an Irish accent to raid, but also raiding, raiding to dip in there to pull what we can out of it. I've been raiding it for 16 years. I remember one particular meeting, because we, we typically do it with a bottle of wine or two around the place. When at the end of the meeting, we calculated that we were uh, moving along at the rate of one and a half lines per bottle of wine. And uh, one member of the group at the time of a mathematical bent calculated that were we to continue and to finish the book at that rate, which of course nobody could do in a lifetime or two or three, then we would go through the production of a small vineyard in the south of France by the time we would have got to page 620. And I'm also struck by the Joyce professionals, these scholars who have some humility about the whole enterprise. It's the case that in the academy that we all 
most all of us suffer from this anxiety about our own fraudulence. I don't think that we are all frauds, but it's within the nature of the training for professorship and doing doctorates and whatever else that one is always doubting oneself. I think it was the Irish playwright Brian Friel who has a line and says that confusion is not a dishonourable condition. I think it's not, but there's something surprising about that because we are kind of worried about confusion. Joyce celebrates confusion. It's a book that bewilders you even as it has a real simplicity to it. It is the perfect book for baffling our usual ways of investigating things. Philip Kitcher told me about one passage of exhausting complexity that concludes with such a simple revelation. A very long question about an old guy who's tired at the end of the day, who's uh, trying to figure things out. This question goes on and on and on and on and on. And then there's a very short one-line answer. And here's the end of the question about shaking something for a better view, wondering what you're going to see. Then what would that far gazer seem to seem self, to seem seeming of? Dim it all? Answer. A kaleidoscape. That's, that's, I think, Joyce's description of what the book is supposed to be, a kaleidoscope. What does a kaleidoscope do? It's got all of these elements in it. You twist it and they fall into new arrangements. I think of the question as being, how do I make sense out of things? How do I make sense of what I'm doing? The character shakes and tries to find a coherent pattern and it doesn't work. And he shakes again and it doesn't work. And he shakes again and it doesn't work. And I think we're invited to think of our lives as having certain elementary features in them. And the task of understanding ourselves and taking stock of ourselves is trying to fit those together into some whole that makes sense. And what that question is bringing home is the difficulty of doing that and of the, you know, the permanent need to go on and explore and to fit and to try to come to terms with what you've been and what you are and for younger people what you might become. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So let's go now to the musical closing lines of the book, read by Catherine O'Callaghan, the lines describing what has been and launching us into something yet to be completed, leaving us in a sentence without a period. So these are the final lines of the book. There's where, first, we pass through grass, behush the bush to, wish, a gull, gulls, far calls, coming far, End here, us then, Finnegan, take, but softly, memember me, till thousands thee, lips, the keys to, given, away, alone, alas, aloft, along the. 
So we have a silence at the end of the book because, of course, the idea is that we return to the beginning to the word river run and that sentence then continues. So we have a sort of cyclical uh, notion of the river returning again. So we could start anywhere in this book. There's no real start or end to it. I was interested in thinking about these strange phrases at the end here, like behush the bush. What did that mean? or even the inclusion of the word wish. There's a Hiberno-English word, which is more commonly spelt W-H-I-S-H-T. And so the T is left out here, but that would be a call for silence. Wished would be a call for silence. But there's another Irish phrase here in the Irish language, be the hushed. And that sounds very similar to behush the bush to be the hush. And it would roughly translate as be quiet, but a more literal translation would be be in your silence. This addition of this phrase here changes the sound and tonality of the phrase and the lots of different modifications of it through the book, because this is the technique that Joyce uses. We have bide in your hush, do, be the hushed, to, bide in your hush, bide in your hush, do. So the phrase repeats in a slightly varied form each time there's a variation on it and this strange technique of Finnegan's Wake is that it's often the case that the original if you like the exact phrase doesn't appear anywhere it that has is silenced and instead we only get slightly you could call it inaccurate or elaborated variations of the phrase here in these you know very beautiful final phrases which are said in the it seems to be this seems to be the voice of Anna Livia Pluribel that it includes within it these two different ways in Irish and in a sort of Hiberno-English of moving us into silence. The very thing that's so experimental about the book the language that flows rather than explains is the thing that's just so easy to participate in. It's full of complexity but that's complexity of dreams of water of things that are already so familiar to us. So what at last do we say about the impossibility of perfectly deciphering this book? What do we say about the popular idea that Finnegan's Wake is the ultimate reader challenge, a sort of literary Matterhorn? Here's Joshua Cohen. Do you want it to be difficult? Like, if you want it to be difficult, then you should allow yourself to be daunted, because then you can say you overcame something. I don't know. I guess it's maybe the same way I, I feel about, I don't know, what did you say, the Matterhorn or Everest? You know, I'm just glad it's in the world. Thank you for listening to Finnegan and Friends. Guests in this series are the novelist Joshua Cohen, author of Wits and Moving Kings, the actor and director Alwen Fuere, who you can see in movies like Mandy, and whose stage adaptation of The Wake is called River Run, Catherine O'Callaghan, Joycean at UMass Amherst, Joseph Nugent, Joycean at Boston College, and impresario behind Zoom in the Wake, which you can watch over on YouTube. Philip Kitcher, emeritus at Columbia University, whose book on The Wake is Joyce's Kaleidoscope. Dr. Jade Wu, a sleep specialist at Duke, and Elok Jha, science journalist with The Economist, and author of The Water Book, which in this case is not a euphemism for Finnegan's Wake. I'm Adam Coleman, and thanks again. <laughs>